December 22nd, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon, and tonight we will review the 2014 book by Tobias Churton, Alistair Crowley, The Beast in Berlin. This is apparently an expansion and compilation of outcuts from the author's biography of Crowley and should perhaps be considered an appendix to that work. Unless you are an ardent Crowley aficionado, it is a hard read. The book is primarily made up of excerpts from A.C.'s diaries and his correspondence, mostly during his 1930s Berlin sojourn as a struggling artist in the decadent twilight days of the Weimar Republic. Along with a running account of the beast's metaphysical politics, sexual magic, and artistic endeavors, Churton manages to give us an in-depth look at the decadent subculture of the Weimar Berliners and an appreciation of Crowley's talents as an artist. So, if you'd like to accompany the beast to the cabaret, tune in and uh, enjoy the show. Now, this review results from a remark I made on a previous broadcast review of the Codex Homunculus when I said that both Paracelsus and Aleister Crowley were both misogynists. One of our listeners promptly emailed me to take issue. He declared, Crowley loved women. Just read Aleister Crowley, the Beast in Berlin, he suggested. Well, I admitted that I had not read it, but I thought it might be worth reading and reviewing, especially uh, because of the time and the venue, the decadent era before the collapse of the Weimar Republic, when Berlin was the sin city of the Western world. So I read it, and uh, my first comment to my ardent polemic listener is, I'm sorry, but the book tends to confirm my opinion about Crowley's attitude toward women. However, in his defense, I will say that if he drove them insane, they were probably on that course when they first met him. But I will not go so far as to suggest that this excuses Crowley's sexual and emotional exploitation of them. And The Beast in Berlin gives us a long-running account of this activity in more sordid detail than most modest readers are likely to enjoy. Crowley did say, after Plato, that every man and every woman is a star. But he also extolled the scarlet woman in whom all power is given. He tended to ignore a woman's nesting and nurturing urge in favor of the less prominent, less mature urge to promiscuity. As one of my wise ladies put it, the law of Philema is for men, not for women. This goes along with another wise woman's statement, men do and women are. But to review the book, Churton's main interest is in Crowley the artist, a side of his work that is seldom emphasized. Although Crowley had little or no formal training as an artist, he had the creative genius's natural bent for artistic expression. And as an Edwardian age Renaissance man, he had to try his hand at it. 
he began squeezing paint directly out of the tubes onto the canvas and only learned to mix his pigments when one of his scarlet women, who had some art training, showed him how. Now, even then, his work still had a primitive quality. But this fitted in well with what the 1920s and 30s Germans were doing, and although they labeled him an outsider, his work was appreciated. The climax of his efforts was a show of 72 works at a Berlin gallery called Porza, P-O-R-Z-A, from October to November of 1932. Now, many of these works have been lost, but the few that are reproduced in the book are very interesting, which is the standard comment a critic makes when he knows a piece of art is good, but he doesn't particularly like it. Now, we get uh, to the Porza exhibit on page 270 of a 364-page book, so most of the book involves Crowley's time in Berlin, living in a garret with his scarlet women, at least four of them, taken from his diaries and correspondence with his friends and associates, Carl Germer and his wife Cora, both in Germany, and Gerald York, Israel Rigardi, and, and Lieutenant Colonel Nick Carter of Scotland Yard, all in London. His wife Marie was also in London, but in an, in an asylum. Most of his communication involved pleas for money and schemes for shady business deals or libel suits Crowley thought might be lucrative. Crowley was a parasite who constantly begged his friends and associates for money, always promising a rich return on their investment in the products of his genius. Carl Germer, Gerald York, and Israel Rigardi all left Crowley before he died and all of them returned to claim their portion of his legacy after his decease. Because the book deals with Crowley in Germany, Churton begins with a background episode in the 1920s, when Crowley visits Carl and Cora Germer to attend an esoteric conclave called the WIDA Conference, that's W-E-I-D-A. This chapter introduces us to Crowley's German connections, and especially his ambitions regarding German esoteric affiliations and publishing connections. We review his association with Theodore Roos, Carl Kellner, and the original OTO. The separation of AC's Argentum Astrum, his thelemized version of the Golden Dawn program, from the OTO dates from this period, and it has lasted to this day. Only Georgina Brayton in the 1960s was ever able to integrate the two systems. We also discover that Crowley was trying to thelemize the Theosophical Society and sought to replace Krishnamutri with himself upon the death of Amy Besant. Amy Besant. One of the delightful episodes at this conference was a nature walk in the, nearby in the nearby forest, where Crowley fascinated his fellow mystics by having animated conversations with invisible elementals as they strolled along the trail. Now, if this had happened today, we would have a video on YouTube of Crowley in his knickerbocker tweeds, waving his hands and chattering to the bushes. Much later in the book, Churton mentions the possibility that Crowley himself 
could have replaced Carl Wegener as Oliver Haddo in Rex Ingram's 1926 film, The Magician. Now, this would have been one of the most remarkable castings in cinema history. Crowley's main love interest, perhaps the great love of his life, was the blonde beauty German-American art student, Hani Jaeger. He was 56 and she was 19. Hani would become Crowley's live-in sex magic playmate, art teacher, and model for the next two years. In 1930s Berlin, she ended up in poor health, apparently due to an excess of 11th degree sex magic operations that Crowley performed to energize his paintings. But he didn't energize Honey. Crowley, Han, and Honey faked his suicide as a publicity stunt, both leaping off a seacoast promontory in Portugal. But years later, the emotionally shattered Honey did take her own life. Crowley was also a voluntary intelligence asset, reporting mainly on communist activity on the German cultural scene to Lieutenant Colonel Nick Carter, the head of Scotland Yard's special branch. That was the origin of Interpol. Nick, Nick was a nickname derived from the dime novel or penny dreadful detective Nick Carter. And is also, he is also said to have had an interface with MI5 and SIS. SIS is otherwise known as MI6. Crowley had contacts with Albert Einstein, Alfred Adler, and numerous German intellectuals. He later reported on the rise of Nazism. He had a good sense to leave Germany before their final takeover. Not so Karl Gerber. Carl stayed behind and went twice into the concentration camps. Some of the most interesting aspects of this book are descriptions of Crowley and his friends pub crawling in decadent Weimar Berlin. Through the beast's eyes, we tour the gay and lesbian bars and cafes, which we may also view in the Toulouse-Lautrecian artwork of the period, which is included with Crowley's art in the color plate section of the book. This is the world of Christopher Isherwood's novel that became the musical Come to the Cabaret. Much of this culture migrated to Hollywood with the German Ufa film industry when the Nazis took over and ran the degenerates out. Well, it's up to the reader to decide if we were cursed or blessed by that exodus. Now, Churton ends the book with a eulogy on Crowley and a long polemic on Philema with his own analysis of why it could never be a political system. As stated in the abstract, this book will be thoroughly enjoyed by Crowley aficionados. Otherwise, it's a hard read unless you are a modern social historian. It certainly finds a place in my library shelf, and, I, and, and with the above qualifications, I would certainly recommend it. Now, that includes the formal review, so let's, um, let's dip into the book and, uh, and have some fun finding out how Crowley uh, uh, managed in Germany. Now, um, those of you who are 
in the Crowley are going to, going to be kind of interested in some of the some of the original background of the of the OTO in Germany. And um, so I'll read this uh, this section here. Alistair Crowley meets the German New Age. Crowley's first encounter with the German New Age came in the form of a certificate received from a German of remarkably colorful background. Theodore Roos, 1855-1923, had lived a life in journalism, music, poll performance, spying as an infiltrator of socialist and anarchist circles in London for the Prussian secret police, and as Leopold Engel's uh, partner in trying to reestablish Adam Weishaupt's late 18th century Illuminati order in Germany. Today, however, Bruce is best known as the co-father of the Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO, and the man who involved Aleister Crowley in that nascent enterprise. The OTO's exclusive path uh, to fruition has recently been uncovered has recently been uncovered in Richard Kaksansky's Forgotten Templars, The Untold Origins of Ordo Templi Orientis. That's a 2012 publication. Revealing how the OTO emerged amid the worlds of fringe masonry and unofficial theosophical societies. In 1883, Bavarian-born emigre Franz Hartmann quit his Colorado medical practice to assist Helena Blavatsky at Theosophical Society headquarters in Adyar, India. The following year, German enthusiasm for the Theosophical Society crystallized when Hamburg's Dr. Wilhelm Hub Schleiden, 1946-1916, became president of a 38-member Theosophic uh, Societ uh, Germania. Please excuse my I don't do very well with German. You know, about the only German I know is Wasserfloh's Dust Gas House. It's a little bit of GI German. I, 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 I don't do very well with German, so please forgive me. Uh, and, and I don't think Churton doesn't provide many, very many translations for his German, which is which is another criticism of the book. You 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 better be able to understand it. If you can't pronounce it, at least you better be able to understand it. Just as the Theosophical Society was getting going, anti Blavatsky scandals cut short Hartman's Theosophical honeymoon in India in 1885. Uh, the Coulomb Affair and Britain's Society for Psychical Research, Hodgson Report, left Adyar's Theosophical Society leadership uh, discredited for fraudulently fabricating correspondence with alleged hidden masters. Now, let me stop for a minute and explain that for those of you who don't understand it. Um, what the what the what the theosophical what the psychic research society discovered was that that Helena Blavatsky had a little um, Hindu kid up in the attic, dropping dropping uh, these 
supposed messages from the Mahatmas. Uh, that's Ranbar Singh, you know, uh, her sponsor, uh, dropping him through the uh, through the through the through the attic uh, down down so she could pick them up while she was supposedly in trance. And while Hartman accompanied Blavatsky back to Europe, leaving her in Munich in November 1885, Theosophical uh, Society membership slumped in the scandal's wake. And though the Theosophical Society closed in December of 1886, its magazine, The Sphinx, uh, continued for a decade. Theodore Roos would contribute an article uh, in, in 1894. In 1888, Hartman joined Frederick Eckstein, Dr. Edmund Lang, and his remarkable wife, Marie, 1858-1934, in a theosophical study group in Vienna. These groups gave Rudolf Steiner his first taste of theosophy and distaste for what Steiner considered Hartman's symbolic and subjective approach to spiritual knowledge. Notwithstanding the young Steiner's opinion, Hartman had become the Theosophical Society's dominant German apostle. Uh, residing in Austria's historic town of Allien in the state of Salzburg, Hartmann encountered the wealthy chemical engineer, inventor, industrialist, and alchemist Karl Kellner, 1850-1905. The affable Kellner was busy constructing a chemical plant to benefit from Allian's ancient salt mines. Kellner spiced his scientific prowess with esoteric philosophy, which had seized his imagination after inheriting his grandfather's papers concerning a secret Rosicrucian fraternity. Age 22, Kellner joined a Masonic lodge in Hungary. Crowley informed Henry Bourbon in 1929 that Roos regarded Kellner as thoroughly outstanding. Crowley himself never doubted Kellner was the OTO's essential genius. Kellner's appreciation of Hartman intensified in 1892 when, having observed byproducts of Kellner's chemical process at Hallian, Hartman published his new treatment for respiratory diseases. Kellner found Hartman's transformation of industrial water waste into gold both appealing and amusing. He backed Hartman's inhalatoriums, I guess that's the place where you inhale, where sufferers found relief through chemical inhalation. Hartman doubtless considered himself a new Paracelsus. He wrote a little biography of the great Swiss spiritual reformer who pioneered uh, eratochemical medicine. How tightly knit Germany's New Age scene has uh, was was becomes apparent when we note that Dr. Hartman's patients uh, in 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 his inhalation equipment was marketed in Germany by Leipzig book, book bookseller Heinrich uh, Tranker. And Tranker would become head of the German OTO in 1923, and Crowley's enemy after 1925. Yeah, he yeah Tranker was one of the one of the people that uh, that was 
uh, in the uh, in the Wada Conference. Like Paracelsus, Kellner and Hartman opened themselves uh, to knowledge regardless of the source. Punjabi yogi Sina Pratapa visited Europe in the summer of 1896, and witnessing Pratapa's demonstrations of yogic sleep, Kellner and Hartman invited him to Halion, whereupon Kellner wrote a pioneering sketch entitled Yoga, published in Munich. Extraordinary performances by Sufi Fakir Suleiman ben, ben Aisa of the Order of Said Morocco uh, also inspired the inspiring Neo-Rosicrucians. Possibly trained within the Asiwa mystical brotherhood, Ben Asiwa could pierce his body without pain or blood. Crowley would later claim he learned such skills from an Asiya adept in Cairo in 1904. Perhaps Crowley encountered Ben Asiya in Paris and did several leading, as did several leading theosophists and Martinists in 1907. The Mies would meet another of Kellner and Hartman's guides, the fiery Kashmiri Brahmin Mahatma Sri Agamaguru Paramahamasa. Uh, who taught Kellner the science of breathing, pranayama. And like Kellner, Crowley uh, would quit his, his alleged holiness presence exasperated by the guru's outrageous threats. More than a match for the Swami's pretensions, Crowley learned Hatha Yoga by himself. Now, I'll comment a little bit on that. Um, the LPO likes to give you the impression that that uh, the so-called ninth degree is actually influenced by tantric yoga, by, by Bengali tantra. It is not, and it never has been. It is entirely Western, entirely Gnostic, and and uh, and and this 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 pretty much proves it, because all this is this is this is this is all hatha yoga and and. Uh, and it doesn't have anything to do with, with Tantra. And uh, so uh, I think they can either an idea with Tantric sex magic. I'm, I'm digressing here because I want to interpret this information. Uh, the, 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 the idea with Tantric sex magic is that there is no, you, you, there's 44, 44 minutes without ejaculation. And, and, and this, and this is finally uh, transmuted up uh, up the up the chakras, uh, you know, to to Sahasraram, and 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 uh, whereas uh, the, the the ninth degree is is actually uses uses semen uses the the the, uh, the ejaculation process uh, in consecrating a talisman and whatever. So the two methods are entirely different, and this idea that uh, so, so here we are learning finally that what what Kellner, what Kellner, Kellner really got, what he really got was was uh, not sex magic, not Eastern sex magic, but regular Eastern yoga, which Crowley also was was proficient at. So um, that I think is is uh, 
is really uh, uh, sort of illuminating in the background of, of the OTO. Uh, you know, uh, also to digress a little bit, when Theodore Roos visited Crowley in in uh, in, in England, um, Crowley had just published uh, his book of lies, and chapter sixty nine. Uh, if you want to read something into that, you can. Chapter sixty nine was was. Uh, uh, sort of a you know a one paragraph description of the ninth degree uh, Gnostic type technique, and um, and uh, sometime in the evening uh, the Crowley had a knock on the door. He went to the door, opened it, and there was Theodore Roos standing there, and and introduced himself. He said, "I'm Theodore Roos," and and uh, Crowley said, "Well, what can I do for you?" And Roos said, "You're publishing our secrets." And Crowley, you know, secrets. What, what do you mean? I'm publishing your secrets. Come in for heaven's sake. And so, uh, so Roos came in, and and uh, and they they showed Crowley the chapter in the in the in the book of uh, in, uh, in in the book of lies, and 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 they so they sat down to uh, to brandy and cigars, and before the evening was over, uh, Roos had made Crowley uh, the high king of the of the OTO, and. And even asked him to, uh, you know, and Crowley introduced him to the law of Philema, and 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 they got on very well. But later, of course, and as is pointed out in this, and uh, that is pointed out in this book, later, and this is important, Theodore Roos insisted that Crowley not insisted that he not integrate his AA program, his Argentum Astrum program, which was Crowley's. The uh, televised version of the Golden Dawn's uh, magical program, and and he had been integrating that in between the OTO initiations, as it perhaps should be, uh, and Roos insisted that that not be that, that 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 they separate the two, and Crowley agreed on it, and strangely enough. Uh, that that have that agreement right there that way back way back then has held all the way up to today, and the OTO is crippled in the fact that it can't teach magic because it, the magic Crowley the, the magic is in in the Argentum Master program. Now back in the 1960s, Georgina uh, Brayton and and a friend of mine who whose name I'm not going to mention. Uh, in the Solar Lodge, they did this. They, the Solar Lodge of Maverick OTO uh, organization, they integrated the AA uh, program in between the degrees, of the OTO degrees, and they and and well, they they crashed and burned like so many or, or uh, these orders do. But but before they did, they had a very effective program, and uh, that should be done in in the OTO today. But but. Um, uh, you know, but Bill Brees and the rest of them, they, they, they can't seem to manage to do it. And so uh, the problem is, I, I, I hear this all the time from OTO members. Well, I, how do I, I'm in the OTO now. How do I find the AA? You know, and you can't find them. They're, they're, but they're, they're, they're around, but you can't find them. Anyway, um, so that's where that, that's where that originates. Now, um, we mentioned that Crowley, we mentioned that Crowley, uh, at one point, with his, with his, um, and this scarlet woman, and and his, uh, his, and this, uh, this, 
beautiful California German uh, Hani Yeager that they they perpetrated a suicide or a hoax and that hoax and this is I'll read you this this. On October 1st, Lieutenant Colonel Carter of Special Branch alerted Gerald York, this is in London, to a frantic communication from Marie Crowley. She had read of her husband's disappearance in Portugal in the papers, probably in the Empire News, in which the following appeared at the end of September 1930. Headline, Famous Mystic or His Double. Message pinned to mouth of cave, vanished couple. A mysterious note pinned to the entrance of a cave known as Hell's Mouth, 20 miles from Lisbon. And the disappearance of a beautiful girl figure in the mysterious case of a man believed to be Alistair Crowley, the notorious English mystic, who is well known in London and Paris, and especially for the Empire News. The mystery of the disappearance in Portugal of a man giving the name of Aleister Crowley deepens every day. The real Aleister Crowley is known as an author and a poet and also a kind of mystic and magician. And he is also much criticized and has been described by some of his critics as the worst man in England. The French police ordered him to leave France last year. A man purporting to be Aleister Crowley recently uh, turned up at a hotel in Estoril near Lisbon, accompanied by a beautiful young German girl who gave the name of Miss Hani Jaeger. One night there was a terrible scene in the hotel, the lady having hysterics and threatening to kill herself, and both were requested by the hotel management to leave the next day the passport. Since then, both the supposed Aleister Crowley and the fascinating Honey Yeager have disappeared from public view, although the police have tried to find out what has become of them. They discovered that the man with the passport bearing Crowley's name and description actually crossed the Portuguese frontier. Yet, a few days later, further discoveries caused the mystery to deepen. The missing man is believed to have been seen still on Portuguese territory. Nothing so far has been heard of the lady, who is presumed to be still in Portugal. What was added to the mystery is the discovery of a letter said to be from Crowley and addressed to Honey Yeager, pinned to a rock. It was found pinned to a rock at the entrance to the cave, known as Hell's Mouth, 20 miles from Lisbon. And it said, Year 14, Sun in the Scales, of LGPI. I, I cannot live without thee. The other mouth of hell will catch me. It will not be as hot as thine. Pisos, tuli you. What all this means, nobody can guess. Are there two Crowleys, one genuine and one imposter? Inquiry at some of, at some of the real Alistair Crowley's favorite resorts in London reveal that he has not been seen at them for some time and is presumed to be out of the country. Is the mystical letter a fake or a practical joke put put up by somebody who has borrowed Crowley's name for the occasion? Well, anyway, Crowley got, got a lot of publicity out of this, which is what he intended. And, um, let's go on with this a little bit. 
hysterics. On September 18th, I received a letter from Crowley. Uh, uh, so this is... I'm trying to find out who wrote this. Um, on September 18th, I received a letter from Crowley stated... Uh, state, oh, no, stated Senor Pessoa. This is a... He's a Portuguese poet who Crowley used to play chess with, saying that Miss Yeager had a terrible attack of hysterics and had disappeared, leaving merely two lines in pencil that she was going to return. On September 23rd, he told me that he was going again to to Sintero, which had enchanted him, and that he would spend some days there. He authorized me to receive his correspondence, forwarded to Cook's agency, so that I could get some books intended for me. He did not leave me any instructions concerning the rest of his correspondence. After this, I swear that I saw Crowley twice, on September 24th, once at the Rosio Street and once at the Café de de Sodre, entering the English tobacco shop. Nevertheless, the police state that he crossed the frontier on September 23rd. Did he actually cross, or did both, or did he both cross and return? Nick Carter assumed, assured, reassured Marie. Only that morning, he had received a card from Crowley in Berlin. Judging from the extended communications, the card might have illuminated the political situation. Adolf Hitler had been barred from sitting in the Reichstag, as he was an Austrian citizen. Shares in the Bruce fell as the world registered that that the Jew and Bolshevik denouncing Nazis were now Germany's largest political party after the Social Democrats. That day, Carter wrote to Gerald York. Curley received the following wire from Pessoa. Letter, cigarette case identified as Curley's discovered evening 25th, mouth of hell, police investigating, doubt suicide, though nothing definite ascertained. Now, that's all part of Crowley's, uh, you know, plants and, and, and for, for, the, for the hoax. So he got a lot of publicity out of that. But unfortunately, um, later on, Hani Yeager uh, did commit suicide, although nobody quite knows uh, where or or how that happened, but we but we're, but uh, certain is fairly certain she did. Now um, the uh, the espionage aspects of this um, are I'm sure quite interesting to Curly uh, to Curly fans, but. Let's have a little background. Before I read this chapter 16 on spying, let me give a little, catch up a little background on, on Crowley and, and Crowley and espionage. Uh, during World War I, uh, Crowley lived in New York and, and worked. He and worked. It's the only job he ever had in his life, by the way. He, he worked uh, for uh, Sylvester Weirich. A German, uh, a German uh, journalist and, and novelist, um, and uh, he worked for Sylvester Weirich at that a paper, a German 
uh, American paper that Zweig was putting out, which was which was of course pro-German, and uh, and Crowley was posing with Weirich. Crowley was posing as an Irish as an Irish uh, uh, German sympathizer. You know the uh, uh, the uh, the Irish the rebellious the Irish rebellious uh, uh, faction had in both wars were were suspected of of uh, conspiring with the Germans against the British. So Crowley used that as a as a uh, uh, means of of convincing Weirich that he was uh, that he was uh, uh, anti-British and and that he could write anti-British propaganda and so Weirich sent him to doing that and Crowley claims now uh, Crowley claimed that he was this was after the war uh, when he got called to task for all of this uh, Crowley claimed that he was really doing this uh, with uh, with the approval of and in communication with British intelligence. Now, whether this was whether this was British naval intelligence or whether it is what, it, but uh, I don't I don't think uh, it was MI6. But 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 he was he he claimed he was doing this and in, in, uh, he was in touch with uh, with British intelligence. That claim, by the way, has been disputed for, by a number of people. But um, Crowley claimed that he was writing this outrageous propaganda, uh, anti-British anti, uh, propaganda, uh, that, that, he, that he believed uh, it was so outrageous that it would not, uh, that it would not appeal even to the German-Americans. Uh, and uh, whether or not, of course, some of this, I think some of this involved the, the, the Lusitania. Hurley was, uh, you know, fulminating, wrote something, wrote, wrote something about the, the warning people not to sail on the Lusitania and, and, uh, and whatever. But Hurley um, excused this, as I said, by, by claiming that he was doing this uh, in in codes with British intelligence. But now, in his confessions, he pictures Sylvester Weirich as a buffoon that he could fool. There's one other problem with this. Sylvester Weirich was the author of one of the most sophisticated and, and, and uh, erudite historical novels of that period. And that was my first uh, 2,000 years, the story of the wandering Jew. And this was on the bestseller list uh, in, in uh, America, Germany, and everything else for, for years. It, 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 it was a very, very popular and a very, very well done, very erudite uh, historical novel. So I don't, it doesn't seem like Sylvester Weirich, with that, the novel being as sophisticated and as, as subtle as it is, it doesn't appear that Sylvester Weirich was that much of a fool. He was not an umpapad German like Crowley pretends. So there is, as I say, there has been dispute about whether or not Crowley really was uh, a British intelligence asset uh, during World War I. That, that is disputable. However, 
during World War Two, uh, this this business in in Berlin with uh, with uh, Nick Carter and Special Branch. This is probably very very accurate because we got a lot of correspondence here that backs this up. So Curley was uh, was serving his country, but he wasn't being paid. He was not receiving. Uh, although Carter did help help him, you know, Curley was begging money, begging money from everybody, and Carter actually helped him uh, it, it's to some degree in 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 getting his in getting his money. But however, uh, Scotland Yard was not. Not paying Curly, uh, and and uh, in World War II, when Curly was living in England after he had left Germany, at that time he was again an asset for British intelligence. Uh, Rudolf Hess, the deputy Führer uh, of, of Nazi Germany, and a very close friend of Hitler's, uh, Rudolf Hess uh, took off in a Messerschmitt 110, twin-engine Messerschmitt, and and with his own peace plan, and <laughs> and some people say letters to the head of the Golden Dawn at that time, which God Lord, the head of the Golden Dawn at that time was Billy Yates, and Billy Yates wouldn't have anything to do with him. But uh, this uh, apparently this was Lord Hamilton, and uh, uh, that uh, that uh, Hess who was something of a cultist, was going to try to make peace. And uh, Hitler Hitler really didn't want to fight the British. He, he actually admired the British Empire, and, and he really did want to. But, but he didn't put Hess up to this, apparently. Hess came up with this idea, well, perhaps Hitler gave him Martian permission. We don't know. We, we'll, we'll never really know, because Hess died in prison in Britain. But anyway, um, here Hess, Hess flies over, Parachutes out and and uh, surrenders uh, to the British. If he can't get a hold of Lord Hamilton, he surrenders to the British, taken into custody, and here they have this they, they have this very very high uh, Nazi official, and they they've got to they, naturally they have to interrogate him. Well, we know that Hess is an occultist, so um, MI6 puts together uh, a team. Uh, and they they bring in Ian uh, Ian Fleming of Naval Intelligence. They bring in uh, they bring in uh, uh, Dennis Wheatley, who was a, a, a author of occult novels, and then they and they bring in Alistair Crowley as a, as uh, again as an asset. Now, I, I, an asset is not an agent, yeah, not an officer, and so uh, here I. Uh, when, when some of my polemic friends tell me that, oh, well, Crowley was an intelligence officer for, no, no, he was an asset. He was an asset. He says in World War One he was certainly an asset in Germany uh, in uh, before before the war. And again, he was an asset in World War Two with the Hess interrogation. And unfortunately, he didn't get paid for that. He didn't get paid. Uh, they didn't pay him. Uh, 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 for uh, for his work in World War Two, but it, uh, at least we can say that that uh, that, that, that he was. Now, uh, I'm going to read this chapter on on spying in the book here because we got a little we got time left for doing. Okay. On Sunday, 15 November 1931, Crowley's 
cinematic ambitions coalesced strangely with Berlin street politics. The day was Totensundag, Dead Sunday, Eternity Sunday, established in 1816 as a holy day for Lutheran churches to remember the dead, especially Prussian war dead. Philip Nikolai's Awake, the voice calls us, was sung. And that chant now rang with all the hoarse insistence of a summons to, res- to resistance by royalists, eager to restore the Hosenhalleran monarchy that had collapsed with Germany's bitter surrender in 1918. You know, it's Kaiser, that's Kaiser Wilhelm's, you know. The venue for the anti-Republican uh, demonstration was the Gessmannsheri, uh, a red brick church at uh, Stargartenstrasse 77, Berlin North, intended at, uh, intended at its dedication by Kaiser Wilhelm II in 1893 as a bulwark against socialism, communism, and atheism. It was now a shelter for radical pro-Republican socialist groups. When royalists crowded uh, the church, the act was deliberately politically provocative. The war dead would indeed be remembered. Germany, they exclaimed, had been betrayed. A strikingly modern ticket to Crowley's Porza exhibition survives at London's Warburg Institute. On its reverse is a secret handwritten note signed 666 to Nick, Lieutenant Colonel Carter, head of Special Branch, London, about the Dead Sunday Clash. The Hitler-Hindenburg crowd want to bring them, the Hausenhollerans, back. They will be in power probably before Christmas. But that will mean French intervention, also revolution, ending in anarchy, with a probable attempt of the Soviets to capture the country. It means the smash all around. Now, I'll explain that. Uh, Crowley is revealing that the Nazis were bringing Kaiser Bill's relatives, Hausenhollerans, back into the Nazi movement, and they actually succeeded in doing that. But uh, Crowley's prediction did not uh, did not take place. Believing Hitler would back the Hausenhalleran restoration, the ex-Kaiser had permitted sons August, Wilhelm, and Oscar to join the NSADP, that's the Nazi party, in 1930. Hitler played the Hausenhallerans along. As the art show ticket demonstrates, Crowley foresaw the end of the Weimar Republic. Well, that that he did, because that was that 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 the Weimar Republic's days were numbered at that point. Precisely how Lieutenant Colonel Carter saw Crowley's intelligence role in Berlin is unknown, but surviving evidence permits us to call Crowley an intelligence asset. And since he disguised his activities, we may call him a spy though not one employed by the British security services for money. Crowley served his country for the hell of it. At the outbreak of World War II in September 1939, 
Crowley did apply formally for Naval Intelligence Department employment, outlining past services. He summarized his intelligence work for the Allies in the United States during World War I when he infiltrated the New York-based German Propaganda Cabinet, a committee of agents and diplomats that included George Sylvester Byrick, Professor Hugo uh, Musterberg, Harvard University, Berlin's ambassador to the United States, Graf Johann von Bernstroff, and military attaché Franz von, von Pippen, indicted for sabotage in the U.S. in 1916. Crowley's secret effort aimed to supply them with false information and erect their propaganda by inducing them to make psychological blunders, all with the object of inducing the U.S. to enter the war on, on our side. Crowley also referred to his work for Colonel Carter, easy, uh, uh, easy for the NID, to, uh, the Naval Intelligence Division, to validate. In 1927, I began to work for Special Branch, and this time... Uh, to work and report on communist activities, especially in Berlin, where I lived almost continuously for three years. Crowley gave the name of the Privy Councilor and Parliamentary Liberal Party leader Sir Percy Harris, first baronet, as one of his four personal references. The Director of Naval Intelligence invited Crowley for an interview on 10 September 1939. By the way, Ian Fleming was, was in Naval Intelligence. And uh, so they probably did, Fleming and Crowley probably did get together uh, during the Hess interrogation. Predictably, British uh, security services have not yet deemed it in their interest to acknowledge any intelligence role for Alistair Crowley. Evidence for Crowley's secret activities is understandably sparse, but but not insignificant. His diaries offer clues, but Crowley was living in Germany and his records were vulnerable to confiscation, and he had been publicly suspected of being a spy for Germany when permission uh, to reside in France was rescinded in 1929. By the way, he was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini, you know, uh, when he had that, that abbey down in, down in Sicily. The case for Crowley's spying has been called impossibly flimsy, the Telegraph London, uh, 7 September 2011. And so we begin with the flimsiest evidence of all, a dream of 26 November 1931, dream. I was made prime minister and foreign secretary, but the king was Wilhelm II, and the place was Paris. And I walked up the boulevard with Ramsay MacDonald, British Prime Minister in 1929, and discussed policy, warning him that he had some months before got Carter after him. Ramsay MacDonald was the first British Labour Party minister. His party was full of communist sympathizers. In 1924, the famous the famous Zeno Zev letter, a forged, a, a, a forged allegedly Soviet instruction to activate civil war in Great Britain through socialist networks, beefed up conservative opposition to McDonald's election as Labour Prime Minister. 
but did not prevent it. And at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Carter, late of the Imperial General Staff, was Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. The interface with British Home Secretary, MI5, Home, Home Security Services, MI5, before his highly distinguished Army career in World War I, Carter had served in the Indian police in Burma. The chief threats to, to security in Great Britain under his watch were communism and renegade Irish Republicans. Between 1928 and 31, Carter had become concerned with possible Soviet funding of the IRA, the irregular, uh, you know, and corresponded with David Nilligan, head of the Irish Free State's uh, Garda Special Branch on the subject. Foreign exploitation of the IRA was familiar territory to Crowley, who had enjoyed inside knowledge of the 1914-15 plot of um, Bernstoff and Sir Roger Casement, Casement to activate pro-German rebellion in Ireland. And, of course, he used that, as, um, as we know, to get in, uh, to get in good with uh, Sylvester Weirich uh, in New York. Crowley and Bill spy. Crowley and Bill's Bill was was one of his scarlet women, by the way. <laughs> Bill, you know, uh, and remember this is Weimar, the Weimar Republic, you know, and 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 most of uh, many many of the uh, the women in the in the, in the Weimar Weimar Berlin were were uh, wearing uh, suits and ties and men's hats. And, uh, uh, Crowley and Bill's paying lodger, Gerald Hamilton, had been interred during World War I for his opposition to the war. Hamilton had also been associated with Casement, who was executed. Churchill would intern Hamilton in Brixton Jail briefly in World War II for his vocal opposition to the war and for his intrigues with the Roman Catholic Church to the end that through contacts in neutral Dublin and elsewhere, more of this Irish Republican stuff, uh, Hamilton was a communist and, and also homosexual. In uh, early January 1932, Crowley worked with Hamilton on, on a uh, book about Berlin. Crowley enjoyed ample opportunity for regular conversations with Hamilton, whose autobiography revealed his ignorance at the time of Crowley's intentions. The gift of 50 pounds given to Crowley by the British government to report on my activities in Berlin. I naturally never knew of this until after Crowley's death, when his literary executor, John Simons, and another close friend, Gerald York, gave me the proof. What is piquant in this matter is that... Uh, on one of my journeys to London, Gerald York asked me to take some English money back to Berlin and give it to Crowley. And this I did. And the amount entrusted to me was 50 pounds in cash that my host had earned by writing a report upon my very harmless activities. Hamilton was mistaken about the money. It came from Crowley's trust. And, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, the, the, the government never paid, you know, British government never paid, paid Crowley. Um, 
got a lot of work out of him, but they never paid him. On January, on 26 January 1932, Crowley had written to York about maintaining his cover so as to get the best out of Hamilton, highlighting the risks involved in his double life. Yeah, so this gives you a pretty good idea of what uh, of um, I'll read a little bit more here. Uh, if he, Hamilton, should learn that I am, as I was born, an English high Tory patriot, my usefulness would be over. And if he should even suspect that I have any relations to Nick Carter beyond pulling his leg, there would be work for you within a week or two without imbo- with the embalmer. Uh-oh. Getting a little paranoid here. So please avoid discussing my politics, or if forced to do so, say you regard me as at least 80% a Bolshevik. <laughs> Note added by Gerald York. AC was informing against Hamilton, who had communist connections uh, to Carter. Uh, please take this most seriously and be cautious as you know how. Um, I hear that Annie Besant is in senile dementia and morbid. She may die any day now. It is most urgent that I should be instantly and widely proclaimed as H.P.B. Blavatsky's legitimate successor. As uh, to my reputation, I am the silent martyr, Jesuit comedy, and the, and the shining token of my mission. Throw yourself into this wholeheartedly, and we come right to the big end of the horn with Nick Carter and all England, too, and two shakes of her rat's whiskers. You can talk freely to Hamilton about my mission uh, with the law of Thelema. He can help with with broadcasting the proclamation. Only avoid politics like poison. He thinks that I, I want to use the Theosophical Society to help communism. Encourage that, that idea. Okay, that's enough of that. Now, um, next week, next week, yeah, are we going to, are we going to go, go next week? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, next week, around New Year's, uh, we're going to investigate a, uh, a political economic cult uh, that flourished back in the 1930s uh, in the United States and, uh, and, and in England, which may very well have, uh, have uh, carried on and had something to do with some of the, uh, the intrigues and the, and the uh, situations uh going on today. So next week, theocracy rising. And that ought to be that ought to be very interesting. It's along the same lines as, as what we've been we've been discussing. So next week theocracy rising and uh uh until then, good magic. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.